Good afternoon, my friends. Happy Wednesday. The doctor is in the house. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G. I tell you what, today is going to be a great discussion. Hey, we got a milestone show today, number 65. We've been bringing it to you live and direct. 65 shows, and I tell you what, the journey still continues. I certainly want to give a quick shout out to my wife, Tiffany E.R. Gomez, for helping make this journey and this experience possible. And I cannot wait to bring you 65 more shows and beyond. But welcome back to another episode of Tear Up with Dr. G. We're broadcasting here live at Intellectual Radio Studios. We're checking us out also live on Facebook. We are continuing this conversation about back-to-school health. Again, our children and our youth, they are facing serious impressing medical and health challenges. And really what we've been doing these last few weeks, we've been breaking them down. So two weeks ago, we were doing bullying. Last week, we talked about, um, what did we talk about last week? Just joking. No, we talked about uh, um, the importance of, of, of mindfulness and, and healthy eating and, and really um, and, and eating disorders as well too. But the really thing that, that, that really what I'd like to do today is really kind of, kind of put this all together. You know, we're, we're talking about making sure that people out there, children out there, their caregivers, their parents, have all the resources for good, healthy living. And at the end of the day, we want equity. We want access. We want people to live healthy lives. And we want to make sure that they have all those tools for success. Remember, as you have success in your health, you're more likely to have success in your life. And so what we're talking about today, we're talking about something that's very centered to us here, a pressing issue called obesity. And today's show is entitled Battling Childhood Obesity. And here's the deal. The reality is that millions of children in this country have obesity. And we have to come together as healthcare professionals and leaders and experts to basically have a unified message to make sure that those children that are out there that are suffering from obesity, that their parents, their caregivers, their coaches, their teachers know that there are options. We have a rising obesity epidemic in this country. We've done it before on my show, talking about adults, but today's focus is on kids. We want to make sure that those kids that are out there that have this diagnosis have ways to help, help improve their living and also to help improve their quality of life. At the end of the day, as healthcare professionals, we want to make sure that we do our due diligence. We're here to serve. We're here to have people live healthier and active lives, and we want them to be as disease-free or burden-free as much as possible. So we've got to talk about this today. The important thing that I want you guys to know out there is I want you all to share this message. It can't just be us talking about things today and having this conversation in today. This conversation has to keep going on, and it's got to be part of the daily vernacular. We have to be comfortable talking about some of these issues that can be very challenging to talk about. But the more you know, the better we'll be, and again, we'll be able to move numbers together. The old saying, it takes a village, and it truly does. Healthcare leaders, community leaders, schools, churches, even, even our local, uh, our local uh, governments coming together to help solve some of these pressing issues. So again, welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G. We're checking us out here. Check out my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. You guys are going to meet my panelists in a few moments. Of course, as usual, I want to hit you with a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So here we are today. And I want to get you guys, I'm, I, you know, those of you that have known me, uh, I, I, I like stats, but I like having more conversation around stats. And so the reality is, the exact number, this is from the CDC, 18.5% of children aged 2 to 19, that is equivalent of 13.7 million people, have obesity. And when you think about those numbers, those numbers are only rising. If you look at it, even in the adult population, which is just certainly uh, 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 representative of, of what happens with our kids, that we have to make sure that we do the right thing. But the adult obesity epidemic is rising, and as, as a result, the childhood obesity epidemic is rising. So we're going to talk about that today. So what I want to do before you guys um, meet my guest panelists, I, I tell you what, I'm just excited to, to, to be here today with everybody here in the studio, and my panels today are fierce, and I say that every week, and I really do mean it. I do all the time. And our panelists, they are just great clinicians. I've known them both for quite some time now, 
And I want them to offer their perspective. And, and, and really for you at home, again, the parents, the caregivers, the coaches, the teachers, the administrators, anybody who's, who's, who's passionate about community health and community improvement, uh, anybody who's passionate about children and giving them the opportunity to, to succeed, this show is for you and making sure that we come together. So I want to introduce my panel today. Uh, for those of you that don't that are new to Tear Up with Dr. G, each week I have a panel of experts and we talk about a health topic. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're giving you the right information from the right resources. Again, we're all about building trust and delivering truth. So here we go. My first panel today, he and I have known each other for years. There's no doubt about that. And we've been brought together by our, by our employer, Edward uh, Medical Group, and part of the whole a bigger organization, Edward Elmer's Health, out in Naperville, Illinois. And so I want to introduce my first guest to the show. Dr. Ty Osgin, let me read his credentials. Dr. Ty Osgin is a board certified family medicine physician. He's with Edward Elmer's Health, www.eehealth.org. Dr. Osgin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here with Lisa today. We're looking forward to having a very good, productive discussion. And it's going to be great. Dr. Osgin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us where you did your medical school, where you did your residency training, and a few opening remarks about this theme of childhood obesity. Well, I'm a uh, family medicine uh, provider. I practice in Bolingbroke, as you do. I trained at the University of Illinois undergrad, University of Illinois here in Chicago for medical school, and I did my family practice residency at McNeil Memorial Hospital in Berwyn. Um, just a couple of remarks about obesity for children. It's not an easy uh, thing to fix um, as far as like a snap of a finger. It's a very long discussion with parents, with educators, with teachers, with coaches, uh, with doctors, everybody has to be involved. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Osmond, for coming on to the show today. My next guest, she and I met also through Edward Elmer's Help at a, an event earlier this year, and we connected really well, and I'm so happy to have her on the show. She's passionate about obesity, and, and she has just so much insight on how to help reduce the burden of obesity in this country, and really being on the front lines of people that are dealing with obesity, with the obesity epidemic, and giving them the right tools and the resources to be successful in their health again, and also again successful in their life. So I want to introduce my colleague, Lisa Murphy. Let me read you her credentials. Lisa Murphy is a board-certified advanced nurse practitioner. She's with Endeavor Health Weight Management. Check her out at Edward Elmer's Health, www.eehealth.org. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. Hey, thank you. You're, hey, it's my pleasure. So let me ask you this, Lisa. Tell us about your background. Where did you do your training? And a few words about uh, this theme of today. Sure. Um, I did my training at Rush Medical Center. Um, I did um, my undergrad uh, accelerated bachelor's in nursing there and um, worked as a registered nurse at Rush for 10 years. Along that path, I had gotten my advanced practice degree um, so now I practice as a family nurse practitioner, as a provider. Um, and more currently, I'm working on my doctorate in lifestyle medicine, which is basically um, treating patients according to lifestyle changes, um, you know, recognizing that things like nutrition, exercise, stress, sleep, all of these play a significant role in health. So that's my new quest. Um, and I think um, obesity is very much a um, sort of a, a challenge. Um, you know, I, I work with patients every day. My, my uh, current job is in weight management, and I think it's particularly challenging for children. And I think it's, um, it's true. It will take, you know, providers, parents, schools. Um, it's going to take the village to, you know, help this, so. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on to the show today, Lisa. So there you guys go. You just met my panel. And so when people come into the office, we call it the chief complaint. And so the chief complaint means that that person's coming in or the family member's coming in. And that's the reason why somebody's seeing their pr practitioner that day. So our chief complaint, a.k.a. the question of the hour, is which strategies are the most effective in reducing the prevalence of childhood obesity in our country. Again, the USA has the highest childhood obesity rates worldwide. Now, other countries out there are certainly having rising in their obesity burdens, but USA, bar none, highest there is. And so we've got to talk about this kind of stuff. So let me ask this question to Dr. Osgin. So Dr. Osgin, you know, generally speaking, you know, why should we as a public care about childhood obesity? We've got to kind of make that argument. Well, I think the problem is that when children are obese, they tend to become obese adults, and obese adults tend to have medical problems, diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, 
you mix that together, add a few years of what happens, heart disease, strokes, circulation problems, kidney problems. So the earlier we start the discipline with obesity, I think the better outcome we'll have as, the, as these children become adults. Excellent. Uh, Lisa, why do you think we should be uh, concerned about this issue? Kind of what's your, what's your take on that? Well, I think because of, you know, that reason as well. Um, but I also think it's, um, it's important to address this because we're recognizing that even, even children who are in utero are affected by this disease. So it all begins as far back as the pregnancy and, you know, um, sort of decision making that has gone on along the way, um, even before the baby is born. So um, I think it's important because we are not addressing the um, sort of preconception, um, you know, everything that will create the, the right lifestyle for a baby to be able to be successful in a healthy weight. Excellent. You know, the reality is that, and I agree with both of you, that obesity is a serious health problem. It's a chronic, long-term condition that requires many resources to properly manage. And, and the reality is certainly is that what we have today, you know, childhood obesity today will affect adult longevity in the future, aka tomorrow. So we have to lay down that foundation, I agree with you, but we have to lay that down now, and we have to create that urgency. If we don't have that urgency, then we're not going to make any gains whatsoever. And, and soon, certainly when they come in and see me as an, as an internist, and they're adults, as Dr. Osgood mentioned, yeah, there are going to be a lot of medical issues, and that's going to affect their longevity, affect their vitality, affect their quality of life, and ultimately their legacy if we're leading to things that can lead to premature death. And as you mentioned earlier, and I uh, thank you for, for telling us, Lisa, that you're going to be doing your studies in lifestyle medicine. Uh, I just joined the American uh, uh, College of Lifestyle Medicine myself uh, last week. They received my, my dues. It is what it is. But, uh, <laughs> but, 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 but talking about a mission uh, uh, that really wants to be transformative, and we have to say, we know that the majority of chronic diseases out there are preventable with lifestyle. And so I love how you're saying that we have to set this foundation now. And even as you said, in utero, the environment shapes a lot of us and everything. So this is awesome that we're talking about it. Again, we have to share this message. Somebody asked this question to Dr. Osgood. Um, does obesity in childhood, does, does childhood obesity discriminate? You know, does it discriminate as far as like socioeconomic or, or is it, are we seeing this across the entire spectrum of incomes, uh, race, ethnicity? What's your take, take on that? Well, I think definitely there's a difference between lower socioeconomic uh, economic class versus upper. Um, people would tend to have, let's say, less money coming into the household. The head of household perhaps might be not very affluent or uh, uh, and bringing in, um, um, let's say, income. They're leaning toward quicker foods because they're cheaper. And I think that certainly affects what type of calories are going into the children's system, and that can potentially lead to obesity uh, and other health problems. So absolutely, there's definitely some, some uh, variables there. Lisa, your take on that same question about, about the, uh, the, the widespread um, prevalence amongst different classes, amongst right. different peoples of childhood obesity? Well, I found it uh, interesting in the re in my reading. There was um, really no difference between gender, okay. so boys and girls are affected okay. similar. Um, and also, um, it, there's a big difference between um, higher income, and then sort of between lower and middle class. There's not a huge, huge difference. So I think that reflects that okay. point of convenience. You know, mom's working, dad's working. Um, you know, it's not always um, easy to get home and cook a, you know, a huge meal at the end of the night. So uh, after you've worked and, you know, taken the kids where they need to go. And so it's, um, it's pretty, it's pretty um, interesting to see, you know, the middle class and the low class quite similar. Um, but then, there, you know, uh, between race there is. Race, culture, you know, ethnicity. So, um, you know, we, we do see places like poorer neighborhoods, food desert areas where there is not the access to foods. Um, you know, we will see higher rates there. Yeah, that's true. I agree on that. In fact, you've seen a lot in, in African-American, Latino communities as well, too, um, uh, that just don't have some of those resources. And again, one of the things that we always talk about as healthcare practitioners, we want to make sure everybody has resources. And it's just like we have to come together and figure out how can we get those resources to those individuals. Uh, years ago, I was working with, a, working with a, uh, a group of practitioners out of Naperville, and we came with a grant, uh, at least a grant proposal, to try to address some of the childhood obesity epidemic. 
where we were where we were going to basically um, uh, try to fund resources to the to the inner city and get those moms, those parents, and the children to get bust them out to Naperville, to the to the western suburbs where there are a lot of where there's a food oasis, of course. And, and we submitted this whole kind of grant proposal. We thought it was awesome. Like, why wouldn't this be an awesome grant proposal to say, hey, get families out there, put resources in the community, bust them out here where there are food oases, and then help them choose those healthy options. And then we submitted the grant, and we did not get the grant. But uh, so shame out there for whoever was a grant decider on that one. Maybe I'll come back with a version two if I can get some time to do so and, and try to do it again. But 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 there are people that are out there that are trying to get those resources for those people because we know those communities are at risk. And at the end of the day, of course, that 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 risk leads to higher healthcare costs long term and certainly higher health complications. And so the foundation is so important. So let me ask this question to Dr. Oskin. So. Uh, say a child comes in, a parent brings in their child, and you screen them, and, and clearly they are obese. How do you start to have that kind of conversation? Where do you go from there? Because I feel like there may be people that are out there that are listening, they, they know that their child is obese, and, but they may not know what to do. So when they go to their doctor uh, or, their, or their healthcare practitioner, what's to be expected? Well, I think most patients who come to see me, children, they don't come in with a diagnosis of uh, I'm obese, what can I do about it? They come in for a well visit, they come in for an upper respiratory infection, and as we uh, take their vitals, look at their height and weight, look at their BMI, and we kind of say, well, what can we do here? We kind of bring up to the parents, okay, your child is overweight, this is where they should be. It's more or less, okay, what kind of, uh, it's, it's a math problem. What's their intake? What's their energy expenditure? It's, it's as simple as that. If their intake calories exceed their expenditure, they're going to put the weight on. So what kind of sports are they involved in? Do they do any activities outside of gym class in, in school? What are their eating habits like? What do they snack on? How late do they snack? So it's a, it's a pretty intense conversation. And there's a lot of, um, uh, I think, variables as far as what can be fixed uh, at that discussion. Lisa, when people are coming to your office and a parent brings their child in and you know that that child's got obesity, how do you start to have that conversation, generally speaking? Well, so now it's more of a adolescent version, but um, in my primary care um, role, um, I, I, I was very, um, I always screened, and it was uh, during my wild child's, and it was a big discussion going back to what point is the child, like how old is the child, what is... Um, you know, going to serve the parent and the child the best. So always looking at the diet as number one is where I would start. So in fact, if, if, if it's a, obviously a newborn or an infant, you know, we're thinking along the lines of breastfeeding. And then um, I, I would then go into a long discussion about the power of food. Whole foods, plant-strong diets for the children. Meat is okay, but, you know, where is this meat coming from? You know, um, quality. So I would really have the discussion about food quality. Uh, quantity, of course, matters. You know, the um, exercise, you know, for most children, we're recommending up to 60 minutes a day. Um, are they in sports? You know, all of things, these things matter tremendously, but also, also giving mom sort of the uh, opening to talk about it. Because the fact is, when you have many children and you have all these responsibilities and you, you know, mom and dad are just trying to make, you know, uh, get food on the table because there's so many things going on, um, I think it's really great to then talk about how can we make the meals most effective? How can we, you know, prepare in advance and things like that? So that's where I would really take it. I think this is where we have to come together as a community to help help each other out. Uh, you know, saying it takes a village, as we referenced a couple times, we've got to... Uh, um, help your neighbor, help that person. You know, we, I feel like, you know, we've gotten into our silos a lot as, as people and, and really that sense of community. And yes, it, it may require a sacrifice for somebody who's trying to help provide a service, but, but we're trying to help each other out. I think most of us are, are good people at heart and good nature. And I certainly say as clinicians, as we're all wearing our clinician hats here, we want our patients to do well with their health and we want to get them the resources, so we have to, you know, we're willing to extend ourselves for that, but we need more help out there. Uh, I tell people this, I mean, your, your local community um, health department 
has great resources out there for people. If the FC can't get to the doctor's office, maybe there's some after-school programs that are out there. But I implore people that are interested in this topic to to start off, start by asking your 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 primary care physician and, and his or her team, but also see what other kind of resources out, resources are out there for you because it's going to take that kind of stuff. It's interesting. Um, my wife and I were having this discussion a little while ago that um, we see now in the schools that in some districts. You know, PE class is being taken away or cut down dramatically, or recess is virtually eliminated. Uh, because at the end of the day, of course, we have to educate our kids to get them ready for a test. There's no doubt about that on particular subjects. And we forget to talk about nutrition. We forget to talk about healthy eating. I think we all kind of grew up where, where you had like the old food plate uh, phenomenon. And we talked about healthy eating back then. But, but, but we don't put the same premium on it as we do social studies, for example, or math. Uh, but I tell you what, if, if we're having chronic disease, you know, the math and the social is going to be out of, the, out of the issue when somebody's got a significant health disorder and they're hospitalized. That's the last thing on their mind because they want to get better. And so we have to have this kind of emphasis. It's hard to do at the school level, I think, because we're losing physical activity and we're enforcing more learning, which, uh, again, I'm not saying I'm anti-learning. You've got to learn. There's no doubt about that. But we have to somehow incorporate these other ideas about health and nutrition. So let me ask this question to Dr. Osgood. Is there a way, I'm putting you on the spot, but how can we make, you know, how can we make this a priority at the school level? Or better yet, let me ask you this question. I like this one better. Say you were, you were asked by a school district to come in and design, I'm gonna ask, I like this question, I'm gonna ask you the same question too, Lisa. Say you were asked by a school district to come in and design like a childhood obesity awareness program. Where would you start? How would you even like start that kind of conversation say you were asked to do so? Well, I think for children, it's, un it's difficult for them to understand the concept of illness and bad health. Because most kids, even when they're overweight, they're healthy. So I think just try to teach them about, um, was I, what I was saying earlier, about calories. Tell them about certain food products that have high calorie um, uh, content. Sodas, for example. Uh, the sugary drinks, the juices. Trying to teach them that too much of anything can be harmful to you. So try to limit that, limit the availability in the, uh, in the lunchroom of those kind of products. Limit the availability of those uh, um, uh, potato chips that are in those vending machines. Limit the availability of those products. Have more healthy products available for the children. Uh, that, I think, has to start in that perspective. Uh, it's got to. Lisa, how would you kind of approach it? Say you were asked by a school district, we're talking hypotheticals, but it's all good. But how would you start to start to create a program centered around childhood obesity if you were asked? Well, I would try to include the parents as much as possible. Um, and then I would start thinking about, well, how can we get these better foods in? So, you know, there are a lot of programs coming up. I know of one in the Bronx where they're actually using towers to grow veggies. They're now turning, you know, rooftops into greeneries. You know, that's in the future, but I do think that if we could get the quality of the food better in the schools, um, and then of course address the exercise piece, which is very important, you know, probably incorporating that more into the curriculum, if not already, you know, um, I feel like for the most part we hear that schools do a good job on that. Um, but, you know, interestingly, teaching the children about sleep, Sleep, oh, yeah. Sleep yeah. Uh, yes. you know, the this is playing such a role in, you know, um, how we, well, we know that, you know, lack of sleep contributes significantly. So getting the children off these tablets in the evening, you know, recognizing that darkness will help them fall asleep, maybe getting them into the bath if they're old enough, you know, sort of, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with teaching things like meditation, you know, peace, peace you know, resting that mind before bed. Um, so those are things that I would think about. And um, stress management for parents, you know, I think it would have to include kids and and uh, the children. Yeah, you have to get buy-in from all Or all kids parts. and uh, parents, yeah. I mean. Yeah, and you have to get buy-in from all parts. It's interesting that you mentioned sleep uh, because there's no doubt that the sleep deprivation kind of epidemic that's going skyrocketing with our kids because of tablets and media and things like that it is absolute, absolutely fueling uh, the childhood obesity epidemic. Uh, chronic stress levels, chronic cortisol levels, and not a, la not a left chance to properly recover at the end of the day. And it's interesting, going back to what we were saying about school, what I would tell a school district is I would say, quit allowing our kids only 15 to 20 minutes for lunch. And uh, I can't recall how much lunch time I had when I, was a, when I was in school back in the 80s growing up, but I'm pretty sure we had more than 15 to 20 minutes. So now you're eating super fast 
on something that may not be that nutritious, nutritious at the same time. So you're not doing mindful eating, and then you're eating something that's high calorie, uh, and then you're also going to keep going to the next class. So the fact that the school that that that, that, that the time to eat has been dramatically reduced, and then the fact that PE is being cut out, these are all things that are hampering our efforts. You know, as as public health kind of experts, we want to encourage healthy uh, uh, healthy behaviors not only in the, in the house, but also on the school front. You know, we trust our school officials to keep our kids safe, and I think part of it, me, my own personal opinion, is that we have to be safe as well, too, from a nutrition foundation, and I think the schools can up to their part. Now, I'm not trying to, I am kind of sort of calling out the schools, but I know that there are ways to work together with healthcare practitioners, clinicians, parents, coaches, to keep things going. We have to do this. So let me ask this question to Dr. Oskin. So we're talking about kind of, uh, uh, we're kind of talking about, like, primary prevention. You know, primary prevention is the sense of like, prevent. what can we do to help prevent maybe a disease from happening, a burden? We're talking about maybe ways that we can design something and then hopefully that helps people not even get obesity in the first place. But the reality is that we already have so many people, so many children, and I quoted the number, 13.7 million children in the USA between two and 19 years old are obese. So now we're getting to secondary prevention. Okay, they got the diagnosis. Um, what are we doing now? So let me ask this question. What can we as healthcare practitioners do better. You know, we have to be our own toughest critics, too. I'm sure that we can all do better. So let me ask this question, and I'll ask the same question to Lisa. Dr. Osgood, what can we as as clinicians do better to lower the childhood obesity burden? You know, I really feel it starts at a very young age with these kids. Uh, kids aren't necessarily born obese. It develops as they get older. Most of the kids, by the time they get to kindergarten, they're really not old. They might be, maybe they're a little overweight, but most of them are not considered obese. As they get older, that's when this obesity, this weight tends to kind of pick up a little bit more. So I think education, very, very young with the, for the parents. Once the kids become obese, it's difficult to turn them back. But if they're not obese, education with the parents, teaching them about the food products when they come in for their well-child visits, this is what they should do, this is what they shouldn't do, this is the activities they need to kind of partake in to kind of burn those extra calories, keep them away from the computer games, um, I, I think it's really education that's, uh, for the parents because it starts young and hopefully that'll last into their adulthood. Lisa, what do you think we could do as clinicians? What, what, what should be our next move to help combat this issue? Well, I think we need to really start designing help for parents. Um, it's enough to say, you know, oh, you should, you should, you should, but the truth is if, if I don't have a dietitian to refer to or I don't have these proper things in place to help assist, then, you know, the parent can only do so much. So um, I think that, you know, we, we should start thinking about how can we collectively, you know, sort of create a model like we do for adults, which would maybe include, you know, some psychological help, um, you know, the nutrition piece to the dietitian, the clinician doing, you know, um, very routine follow-ups, check-ins, um, creating a, a safe space for the child. Like, I had it one time when um, I had a young boy who was um, really, really hesitant to speak up. And, you know, me, him, and mommy had a heart-to-heart. -heart, and finally, he had mentioned um, the, the, the thing that bothered him most is that his family called him Gordo. Mm. And this is a, a typical name that, you know, uh, a child might receive in, inside the family. And that was such an eye-opening moment for me. I was like, wow, you know, these little um, love words that we use for children maybe not always, isn't always, you know, going to serve them well. Or, you know, they might actually take that inner and that could create a lot of self-esteem. So, you know, I think I love to address self-esteem with the kids too. And so I think that's a big piece of it. Um, but really just, just letting them know we, we know, we hear them, we're here to help them. Excellent. And, and for those out there, gordo means fat in Spanish. And so, uh, but it's true, you're talking really volumes about the emotional toll on children because children's minds are still growing, their bodies are still growing. And, they, and then certainly when they get to the teenage years and, and hormones are going crazy at that point and a lot more um, uh, judgmental behaviors happen uh, because of, for a whole host of reasons, uh, AK, go back to my bullying show that I did two weeks ago. But there's an emotional toll out there as well with, with, with obesity, self-esteem, uh, self-image, and, and trying to make proper healthy food choices. So let me ask Dr. Oskin this. You know, what are some, like, the emotional tolls that are out there? Because, you, know, uh, you know, we have to kind of put ourselves in kids' shoes these days. Yes, we are adults, but we were once children ourselves. We didn't have this kind of emotional toll 
Um, uh, uh, certainly, you know, if there was any bullying going on, certainly, you know, back in the day when there was no social media, there wasn't potential bullying 24-7, but the emotional toll on kids this day and age uh, with social media is very tough. How would you start just kind of, you know, say a parent brought their child into you and you kind of are suspicious of this, how do you just start to have that kind of conversation on uh, for kids and trying to give them a pathway of, of hope uh, versus maybe a pathway that they're going down that might be more full of despair? Well, again, I think it starts very young. I'll give you an example. Uh, oftentimes, uh, patients will come in, kids will come in to us, let's say, for kindergarten physicals. And obviously, there's quite a few immunizations that we administer during that time. And many times, I'll hear parents, let Dr. Osgin get you these vaccines, and afterwards, we'll go out to McDonald's. We'll go get some ice cream. So they're using food products as a way of making them feel better because of a distressful situation. So they learn that food will make me feel better. And I think that just kind of emanates as they get older, and they kind of use food as a product to make them feel better as they get older. So it was in adolescence, as adulthood. And that's a very, I think it's a learned behavior. So if we teach them that that is not necessarily the right way of approaching it, and as the kids get older, if they are starting to resort to food, why? Is there some underlying problem? Are they, are they having problems with anxiety? Are they having problems with depression? Yes. So they start to kind of get involved in those kind of questions. And do we need to look into that as a way of fixing their obesity? Uh, and, and I want to piggyback on what you said. I mean, even uh, obviously anxiety, depression, emotional bullying, discrimination, there's so many different things that can happen uh, to that child. Uh, you know, and yeah, we've kind of maybe have reinforced those behaviors because I mean, I feel like my wife and I joke around this all the time, like, sometimes I feel like we have to negotiate with our five-year-old and our seven-year-old. And I'm like, wait a minute, parents, parents got a parent at some point. Like, like negotiations got to be off the table. You're the parent, or the coach is the coach, or the teacher is the teacher. And then we've kind of helped fuel this behavior. Of course, we create a nice chemical when they get that McDonald's, they get that chemical, or these dopamine, little pleasurability there. That's a powerful chemical, without a doubt. And it can, it can just set the foundation for if I get into any kind of trouble or any kind of situation, I've got food as my backup, as my comfort better. thing to make me feel better. And then you start getting dopamine again. And it's, so it's just, it's just this fueling system that can happen uh, and without potentially end in sight. And then, then people come to our offices and then that's when we're starting to see the complications of obesity. So let me ask you this question, Lisa. Uh, studies show that we, as clinicians, I'm just talking generally, not saying anything about either of you, but we as clinicians are not having this conversation about obesity with our children, or in the office, because maybe we're doing other things, but we as physicians and clinicians are not having this conversation as often as we should, and on the flip side, Patients are are afraid to potentially bring up their weight in their office visit and maybe waiting for the clinician to say something But so at the end of the day nobody says anything and then we're stuck and we're where we started out at square one So how do we bridge that gap? How do we make it more comfortable for, for us as clinicians and even for parents out there? How do we make it more comfortable to, to talk about a topic that may be difficult to talk about? Well, I think first, if clinicians get the training, um, I know that in my, um, you know, in my training as an advanced practice nurse, I had one nutrition course, um, and it was online. So um, everything I know, I have done, I have essentially taught myself. So I think it's important to make sure that it's in the curriculum, make sure that we are um, teaching clinicians in a way that they're comfortable. Um, I think it's important to walk the walk if you're going to be telling people you know, how to live and do things. And I think it's important that we as providers also are living that way. And I think that's a big barrier. So that might be, you know, the clinician might not feel comfortable because who am I to say if I'm not walking the walk, right? So I think that's a big piece of it. Um, and then I think that, you know, patients are very, um, you know, they're embarrassed and they're afraid to be reprimanded. And so I think the simple question of, um, do you mind if we discuss your weight today? Um, you know, I've noticed, uh, and, and you know, taking the approach of like, you know, that that's okay if you don't want to, but I can really help you if you want. I could really help you start coming up with a plan, and um, let's let's start moving forward and in your journey. I like that question that you put because it's not being too judgmental, but it's being just open and, and creating that comfort. And I think as 
we get to know patients that come into our office over time. We get to become more comfortable. But I like how you just said it. Do you mind if we have this conversation today? And maybe they won't, but but maybe but maybe they do. And, and but we have to we have to say something. I know it's hard, uh, and, and certainly Dr. Oskin and I we've talked about because we work together a lot. When you're doing a lot of things as, as a clinician, and you've got X, Y, and Z to do, the old kind of uh, cookbook or recipe book approach to medicine, and there may not be the time to make that intervention, to have that brief conversation that might lead to another conversation because we have to get X, Y, and Z done at that one time when we had the person in there for 15 to 20 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever it is. And, and so I feel like the system has, has uh, thrown some barriers at us to be able to have these conversations because of other things that have to get done as far as the global health. What's your take on that? No, I, I think definitely um, they, the parents, I think, are very appreciative. Um, when children come in to see us, and again, as I mentioned, they don't come in for obesity, they come in for other things. And when we start talking about it, I think the conversation does occur at home with the parents. Because when I start talking to the child about it, the child oftentimes gets, you know, they get a little teary-eyed because they're aware they're overweight. They, they have a, maybe a self-esteem problem. But at the, at, the, at the end of the visit, as they're leaving, either the mom or dad, they just kind of look at me and go, thank you. And very, uh -huh. you just whisper thank you. So they know that it's not just them talking about their their child, uh, to their child about obesity, actually a doctor mentioned something, a clinical person mentioned something to them. And I would say you never know what your words may say. I mean, words can have lasting impacts. Uh, and if it has a lasting impact in a favorable way that may stimulate more engagement, uh, I'm all for that. But I think we owe it to our patients uh, to be honest with them uh, and to be truthful in our approach. At the end of the day, we're talking about potential situations because of the obesity epidemic, complications that can ultimately result in life or death. And so we have to have these kind of conversations because we say, do no harm. And so, uh, but, but, but I'm glad that we're talking about it because people out there, I want you to know that, that your, your clinician out there, your doctor, your, your advanced nurse practitioner, your primary care clinician is out there to make sure that you're good too. They care about you. They don't want you to fail. If you get into trouble, that person will be there to help rescue you and, and direct you to the right resources if it needs be. But we have to be, continue to be open and honest with each other. And I encourage you out there that are listening to the show, people, to be open and honest with your clinicians and talk about things that are important to you. For me as a clinician, I get behind people that people that are out there that are my patients that are watching the show or listening to us here live on radio. They know I run behind schedule. But for me, I'd rather take the time with somebody and if I can impart some value into that, then all the benefits will come down the road. So we have to have that conversation. Let me ask this question to Lisa. So say, you, say, say uh, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about, um, you know, we gotta make sure the, the setting's right for sleep. We were talking a little bit about sleep, mm -hmm. uh, getting off the social media. So we're talking about kind of healthy lifestyle habits out there. What are some just kind of general le healthy lifestyle habits out there that, that you employ to help people out with obesity, especially childhood obesity? What are some things that family members can take like right now and be like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Okay. First, what is always um, to eat whole foods. Mm -hmm. Real. Here's an apple. Here's applesauce. Take the apple. <laughs> um, Non-processed when possible. Um, and then, you know, making sure the diet is rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds. Adequate protein is extremely important for growth. Um, you know, um, the, the right kinds of fats. So, you know, I always tell my, uh, I used, well, I tell patients and children, like, when a baby is born and it is going to be fed breast milk, there is carbs, there are fats, and there are proteins. And this is what is sustaining this little baby, you know. So we have to really create a good relationship with food and then uh, recognize that all of those macronutrients, water, vitamins, minerals, all of these play a big role in our success. Uh, successful weight and then um, I think uh, the exercise piece will be huge you know if they're if they're of the age you know it's it's basically have your child actively play up till two and then after that then we start making intentional exercises sports and things um, you know take the tablets in the evening take them away it's time for bed it's it's uh, you know maybe the family can sit and you know there's a lot in the there's a lot going on about you know gratefulness and things like that but there's truth to this have the kids look at their day, you know, how how did it go? What what happened? Was it, you know, anything you want to talk about? Um, have this around the meal, you know, always try to promote family meals because I don't know about you, but I grew up around the table. Yes. And it's so different than what I see, you know, and uh, 
you know, and giving the, the parents the power to say, you know, no, you can't eat that. I'm sorry, honey, but it's it's not it's not you know um, a good idea right now or something like that. You know, not rewarding with food most of all because that's not going to equate to um, a healthy weight <laughs> and the sleep factor and um, stress management for the kids. Well, there you go. I love how you're doing it, how you're saying it, and I love how you know eating as a family. You know, one of the things that we do, we my wife and I do board games. We have we have some serious battles of Uno and Monopoly Junior going on in the in the Gomez household. But we can do that in, in a media-free time. So the TVs are off, the phones are off. You can parent at that same time. You can have some healthy snacks. You can talk about your child's day. So we love doing that stuff. And, and yes, we have a mean game with Uno, and we try to sabotage each other on Uno, but that's all right. But, but we're having those kind of meaningful interactions that can really set somebody on the right trajectory, right pathway to their health and well-being. Dr. Osin, give us a few thoughts on from your end from a family, what can a family do right now to encourage uh, healthier behaviors for their children, especially centered around the obesity epidemic? Well, again, I think the parents, they have to show their kids right from wrong, just like we teach them. You don't do this, you don't do that. It's it's also applies to food products, applies to activities. With the, the, the parents being the primary educator for these, for these children, I mean, it's the utmost importance. And granted, I want to make one more comment. There is Please. a little bit of genetics involved, too. Genetics, I think, can predispose some children to become overweight if they're, if they, if they're so inclined. But it doesn't mean they're guaranteed to be, to be overweight. But if parents tend to be overweight, it's probably because of their food choices and their inactivity. And that kind of just goes on to the parent, to the children. Oh, gee, okay, I guess this is the way my lifestyle is. I'm going to be overweight and not active. It's like parents who smoke, their children probably think, well, it's okay because mom and dad smoke, so I can smoke. So it's, we have to teach our, I think the adults have to teach themselves right from wrong and portray that to their children. I mean, it's education. That's all it is. Excellent. I love it. So what I'm going to do and get, get to now, you know, we have this great discussion about uh, childhood obesity, talking about uh, ways to, uh, to help to bridge the gap, bridge the divide, and hopefully set a foundation for engagement and foundation for improved long-term outcomes when it comes to childhood obesity as kids transition to become adults and hopefully continue to transition to have healthy and active lifestyles. So I want to get into a section that we do each week on Tear Up with Dr. G uh, called Myths versus Facts. So here's how it works. I say a statement. I call on one of my awesome panelists. They say either myth or fact. There are, uh, it's their opinion, uh, but it's always truthful at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, no, seriously, we want people to get the right information from the right resources. It's about setting the truth and about setting the right, the right words, I mean, the right approaches out there for people to have the right information at the right time to make the health decisions that they need to make for their family and their loved ones. So here's a statement. I'm going to say this statement, and then Dr. Ozzie, get the first one. You'll say myth or fact, and then give us why. It'll be kind of a little rapid fire like that, and we'll go from there. We'll have a nice back and forth okay. section. So here we go. Myths versus facts. Battling Childhood Obesity. Here we go. Dr. Osgood. Statement. Screening for childhood obesity should be done at, at routine. Primary care office visits and appropriate treatment strategies should be implemented. Myth or fact? Oh, boy. I mean, of course it should be done. Please explain. So you'll say, you got to say fact. Uh, uh, I, 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 I would uh, say it's fact. Okay. And please explain. Well, uh, every time the child comes in, you check their height, you check their weight, check their BMI. Uh, it's, it's a vital sign. Their weight is a vital sign. We think about blood pressure, heart rate is a vital sign. Their weight is a vital sign. And you cannot check it often enough. Excellent. Thank you. Here we go, Lisa. Here's a statement, myth or fact. Childhood obesity affects children of all races and socioeconomic levels. Myth or fact? Fact. Please explain. Uh, I see, uh, it, you know, obesity in my own family. I see it in my neighborhood. I see it everywhere. So um, I don't think it discriminates. All right. Thank you very much. I got to give you guys some challenging ones. I got to give you a couple of lob balls there. Here we go. Dr. Asin, here's your statement. Most likely your child's excess weight is associated with poor eating and activity habits. I will say Fact, okay. exclam with a little asterisk Well, again, uh, yes, it is eating. Yes, it is activity. There's some genetics. There's socioeconomic factors. There's depression. There's, so there's a lot of other things, but those two things that you alluded to are very important. All right, here we go. Lisa, here's a statement. 
Quote, because my child is heavy, he actually needs to eat more food to stay healthy. That is a myth because we know that uh, when a child becomes obese, it's actually a form, or they're actually in a state of being malnourished. Okay. So they are actually overfed but undernourished. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you very much. I agree with you 100% on that one. Here's a statement, Dr. Osgood. Here we go. Uh, as a parent, there's not much I can do to help my child with obesity. Uh, myth. Please explain. We are parents. We teach them right from wrong. We teach them about bullying. We teach them about drugs. We teach them about alcohol. We teach them about sex. We teach them about food. It is utmost important that we teach them because what we teach them now is going to affect them in their adult life. Excellent. Thank you. Here we go. Lisa, here's a statement. Myth or fact? Childhood obesity isn't really a problem until the elementary school years. That is a, uh, a big myth. Please explain. Well, we know that, um, again, going back to what I said earlier, this can begin in utero. And actually, children who have obese parents, I think I read for a mom, uh, four times the likelihood of being obese um, as a child. And then uh, even dad contributes. So, you know, two times more likely. So Excellent. And I read a, I read a stat, um, I believe it was off the CDC, where they said uh, greater than 20%, so one in five kids between the age of two and five years old are considered overweight or obese. Here we go, Dr. Ozzie, here's a statement. Parents tend to underestimate their child's weight. Uh, I would say that's true. Okay, that's a fact. That's Please fact. explain. I think sometimes parents don't look at their kids um, the way, let's say, clinical people do. They think if they're big and you know, muscular or health bigger side, they must be healthy because they're getting a lot of nutrition. And I think we see that with oftentimes with babies in the beginning. Oh, look how big he is. He must be eating a lot. He must be very strong and healthy. Well, not necessarily. Big doesn't necessarily mean they are healthy. All right, here we go. Here's the statement, uh, Lisa, here we go. Many of the, quote, natural supplements that teenagers might be attracted to, as well as the near-starvation diets that are promoted in newspaper ads or popular magazine articles are risky. So we're talking about some of the supplements and these, these uh, dietary extremes are risky. I would say fact. All right, please explain. Um, it depends on what you're referring to, but um, really the only way to have a healthy life is to create a healthy lifestyle Thank with you. all those things I've spoken about. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. There's not a one magic pill out there, a sup that's out there. Sorry for you out in the supplement worlds. There's not a pill out there that will help your child uh, in their obesity just like that. Dr. Osgood mentioned earlier in the show, it's not like a snap of the finger. We have to have systems in place to continue to Forge ahead in reducing childhood obesity. We've got, let's do a couple more. We've still got a little bit of time. Here we go. Dr. Oz, going to like this one. All right. My, here's the here's 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 words. My child may seem overweight according to the growth charts, but our entire family is big boned. So I don't think he has a weight problem at all. Uh, well, that's a myth. Please explain. Again, big bone doesn't necessarily, uh, I don't think there's really a term big bone. Sure, they might have a large body structure, but. If they're heavy, they're heavy. If somebody's muscular, okay, they're perhaps they don't have as much fat on board, so perhaps that could be healthier. Uh, let's say an athlete, for example. But if they're big bone, I think that's really uh, 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 something that the parents use to kind of accept that their fat, their child is overweight. All right, and here's the last one. I'll do this one for you, Lisa. Uh, this is getting to some habits that kids may do when we're talking about weight. But here's a statement: uh, purging or laxative use. Uh, is an effective way to lose weight. Myth. Please explain. These are neither of these are a good way to lose weight. It could complicate things, lead to you know nutrient deficiencies, electrolyte deficiencies. It's just not safe. I agree. Thank you very much. And yes, don't do that kind of stuff. If you have any concerns about your your dietary approaches, talk with your talk with your clinician. They can get you set up with the right resources. So there you guys got to have it. Myths versus facts. All right. So we got about five minutes left. So we've been having this great discussion, and time flies by. Isn't that crazy? So um, we talked in the beginning. We called the chief complaint, talking about our question of the hour. You know, how do we how do we come up with creative strategies and reducing the prevalence of childhood obesity in our country? At the end of the, at the end of our visits, when people see us, we call that the assessment and plan. And that's when we wrap it up. We give somebody a diagnosis. We give them a treatment plan, and most importantly, 
they schedule a follow-up because it's all about the follow-up. So let's bring it on home. I'll start with you, Lisa. Give us a couple, you know, parents are listening to us today, caregivers, grandparents, coaches, teachers. Give us a few take-home points, a few strategies that they can take right now and implement to be successful in combating the childhood obesity epidemic. Sure. Um, uh, so, you know, go back to the good nutrition, eliminate, you know, the fast food when possible. Uh, make sure to get the child sleeping according to the correct, you know, because as their age will vary on how much they should sleep. Um, you know, make sure that the child's very active, um, monitor those things like social media. It's playing a big role and most of all, you know, um, you know, it would be important to address that confidence level. Excellent. Child. Excellent. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today, and I've, had, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Dr. Osgan, give us a few take-home points for people out there that are listening to us, watching us, to be successful in ending or reducing the burden of the childhood obesity epidemic. Well, first of all, as I said earlier in a program, weight loss, obesity is a mathematical problem, okay? It's the calories that are coming in, and it's the calories that are coming out. In my practice, um, the people who have been the most successful in losing weight are the ones who are eating properly. Exercise is key, but the most important factor is nutrition. So uh, it's never too late. Exercise helps, but it's what you eat that's the most important part about weight loss. Excellent, Dr. Asian. And my final thought to this, you know, I want to keep it simple. The advice that I give to my patients is the same thing that I'll give to you out there that's listening to us. And this is what I tell my patients. Again, I see adults. I don't see kids, but I can still comment on this. So move more, eat better, stress less, and sleep more. And I think if we can do that kind of things, it sets us up for a foundation. But when it comes to today, outside of that, you know, don't skip breakfast. Keep healthy snacks on hand. Eat as a family. And I agree with what Lisa said, avoid excessive screen time use. Keep meals, family meals particularly, keep family meals media free. If you do that, you're going to have a lot of success in this issue. So I want to thank my, my panel today. This has been awesome. So my panel has been fierce. We've been, there we go. It's like success. We've finished the show. Yes. Uh, but again, but again, we have to keep this message going on. So I want to thank my panel today. My panel, again, my fierce panel. Dr. Ty Osgin, we read his credentials again because he's fierce. Dr. Ty Osgin, board certified family medicine physician, Edward Elmer's Health. Check him out, www.eehealth.org. Thank you, Dr. Osgin. I want to thank Lisa Murphy, uh, board certified advanced nurse practitioner, Endeavor Health Weight Management, also part of Edward Elmer's Health. Check her out, www.eehealth.org. Hey, you've been listening and watching live on Facebook and intellectualradio.com. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Producer is Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2019 by MDG Wellness, LLC. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for my next episode in two weeks. I'm off next week. In two weeks, we'll be back. That title will be called That Testosterone Show. Hey, share today's message. If you enjoyed everything, check out my website, www.drmarkovas.com. I'll catch you guys later. Peace out.